are children of God and there are children of the devil. And just with jelly beans, there's no middle ground. There's, there's no middle ground with God either. Any middle ground that we have, because we're like, I'm not sure, is it a child of God or a child of the devil, is because we lack full knowledge and we lack discernment to read the hearts of people. And of course, we can't entirely sure read the hearts of people. We don't, we don't know. But God knows. And in His mind, there's no doubt whether you're in the kingdom or out of the kingdom, whether you are one of His children or whether you are a child of the devil. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to First Peter. I'm sorry, First John. First John chapter 3. And we're really looking at the, the heart of this epistle today. I've told you many, many times, the whole purpose of First John is chapter 5, verse 13. We encourage you to take your pencil and to, to write a, a big box around there. I encourage you, don't write in pen, because I've made that mistake before in my Bible, and it got wet, and then all of a sudden I had pen marks through three, four, five pages deep. But write in pencil, right there, 513. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So that you may know that you have eternal life. John is writing this letter to those who had believed. And he he wanted them to know that indeed they had eternal life. Now, it wasn't simply telling them you have eternal life. What he was doing was he was giving them reasons and evidence. And way to look through and understand tangible ways. About how to know indeed that they were believers. And had eternal life. As I read this text, I want you to listen for the characteristics of those who believe and the characteristics of those who, who don't believe. 1 John chapter 3, 4-10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your spirit now to be working among us. I just know that this message could be deep and penetrating, could be heart-opening, could be heart-wrenching for those not in Christ, for those perhaps who are playing a game, perhaps who go through the religious motions. Father, would pray that you would open and expose the heart in your way. I can't do it, but your word can. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword pierces as far as soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and I pray for your spirit to come and, and pierce God. I, I think about that final day when we, we stand before you, and I, I stand in, um, in accountability for those I've watched over and shot to shepherd. And Lord, we pray that, God, none might stand before you uninformed, unaware, that you might open eyes and open hearts to what's really going on in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen. Well, the best place to begin this text is at the end. Verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Now, the New American Standard says this. The children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. It is clear. There is one or the other. And you see, when the children of the video tasted jelly beans, there's little doubt whether they had a fine-tasting jelly bean or a sour-tasting one. Their faces let you know it. They, they tasted it, and their face let you know it. Now, when it comes to the children of God and the children of the devil, it should be just as evident. It should be really obvious. Now, we don't taste people to see whether they are on one side or the other, but we can observe them, and we can look, and we can see you say, how can you tell who's a child of God and who's a child of the devil? Well, let's, let's read verse 10 again. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil, colon. This is how we know. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You can tell by observing, by observation. You can be a good detective. You can be a good scientist. Just look and see people, what they are. What sort of life one is living. And profession is a good thing. In fact, it's required to enter the kingdom of heaven. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's where every child needs to begin a journey of his walk with God. is with a, a confession with his mouth that Christ Jesus is Lord. Absolutely. I'm trusting Him. And believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Meaning his work on the cross was totally sufficient for my sins. He demonstrated my justification by being raised from the dead. That's where everyone needs to begin. But when it comes to an understanding of whether that confession is real or not. It's not just more words. Rather, it's a look at your life. And whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. John gives us two ways to know. First of all, if you don't practice righteousness, you're not of God. I don't care what you say. If you're not practicing righteousness, you're not of God. If you don't love your brother, you're not of God. I don't care what you say. And people can be pretty convincing, but that is not the case. If you're not loving your brother, you're not of God. Our text this morning, verses 4 through 10, really cover the righteousness aspect of that. Uh, practicing righteousness. We begin in verse 11 through 18, and all speaks about love. So today we're going to talk about righteousness, and next time we're going to be talking about, about love. Which, by the way, next week is our Thanksgiving service. Is that right, Ryan? Yeah, so we're going we're gonna to pause from First John next week. We're going to give you an opportunity to give thanks and praise to God. We'll be more of a a prayer-centered service. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper next week, the, the giving thanks to God. So you can come. So it'll probably be two weeks that we'll be in this. I'll have more about that in the weekly word. But just be thinking now about things you're thankful for in preparation for Thanksgiving. But today we're going to look at righteousness. My message appropriately is entitled The Righteousness Test. The Righteousness Test. And that's exactly what verse 10 says. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And so the question is this. Are you practicing righteousness? Are you practicing righteousness? You know, if, if you look at, at, at your life and see that you're not practicing righteousness, you may 
guarantee yourself you are not a child of God. I mean, it couldn't be more plainly. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Or we can put it positively, as John does in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Practicing righteousness is the theme of of our text this morning. Either you're practicing righteousness, verse 7, or you're not practicing righteousness, verse 10. And you can look at your life, you can test yourself, you can see which side of that divide you, you fall upon. And discerning your practice will be a way of knowing, really, whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ or not. Because a believer is going to practice righteousness, but an unbeliever won't. In fact, that that was John's point in chapter 2, verse 29. Look back up there. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If you practice righteousness, it shows that you have been born of him. Now, this is, this is key to understanding here, like, like what verse um, 7 says. It says, if you practice righteousness, you're righteous as Jesus is righteous. Now, it's not because you attained to the same righteousness as Jesus did. Because, in fact, as verse 5 says, in him there is no sin. He was sinless. Not, not that. But it is a demonstration that you have indeed been born again. Chapter 2, verse 29. You may be sure everyone who practices righteousness has been born of, of him. The righteousness that you practice isn't meritorious before God. It doesn't earn your way to heaven. But catch this. It gives evidence that you are on your way to heaven. It gives evidence of whether you are a child of God or not. And so the question right comes up. What does it mean to practice righteousness? Well, basic level. Righteousness is doing what is, help me now, right, doing what is right, as opposed to doing what's wrong. In other words, is your life filled with doing what's right, or is your life filled with doing what's wrong? I want you to ask yourself that question. And here's the interesting thing, is that when you ask people that question, I didn't do a survey, my guess is, if I would survey people in the church or outside the church, people say, um, are you, is your life characterized by doing what's right? I think 99 out of 100 would say yes. It's because Proverbs 21 verse 2 says, every man's way is right in his own eyes. He's going to look at his way that he walks. In his own eyes, he's going to be right. So everyone thinks that they're right in their own eyes. But as Proverbs 21 verse 2 ends, every man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. In other words, God really knows whether you practice righteousness or not. Everyone thinks that they're doing right, but God knows when he finds a heart that's not. I I think about the Pharisees in this regard. The, The Pharisees were those who externally, boy, did they do right. But it's not about externally about internally see these pharisees i think are probably the arguably the most righteous people that ever lived Um, they devoted themselves to studying the law they memorized the pentateuch genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy they didn't have distractions they didn't have all this information so all their mind was focused upon god's word and with 
with devoted diligence, they committed to doing what was right. Even so much that Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he said he was a Pharisee, as to the righteousness which is in the law, you remember he said, I was found blameless. He kept the whole external coding of the law. And yet Jesus told them that their hearts were evil. Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may be clean also. Jesus was attacking these Pharisees who, who had the shell of religion but missed the heart of it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. Inside, they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That was the Pharisees. And that's many people in the church claim righteousness. Uh, we've been reading in Kids Club through a, a, a children's version of Pilgrim's Progress. And, and just after Christian looks to the cross and has the burden of sin fall off his back into the tomb, he then is walking along the way and these two guys jump over the wall. Their names are formalist and hypocrisy. And, and these are guys who are on the road and, and um, Christian looks at them and he says, didn't you go by way of the wicked gate? And he said, no, nah, we don't need to go that way. We can go our own way. We can go over the wall. What's the difference as long as we get there in the end is what they say. And Christian full well knew there's a big difference in that. But these were just those saying, oh, well, I'm on the path. I'm okay. But their hearts, hearts are wrong. And so when we talk about righteousness, we're talking about righteousness with their life. We're talking about righteousness with their heart. And we're talking about inside out, not merely being external. And the heart that's right before God basically will seek his ways. But the heart that is not right before God, that doesn't do right, actually seeks one's own ways. I just ask you, are you practicing righteousness? If someone would come and examine your life, what would they see? Would they see someone walking in the ways of God or would they see someone walking in their own ways? Let's look at my second point because this will bring clarity to my first point. It is longer, my second point is, it's just this, rather than are you practicing righteousness, are you practicing sin? Because this really helps give clarity to what righteousness isn't. Righteousness is positive, sin is negative, if you will, they're, they're the opposite. Uh, the first question, are you practicing righteousness, has to do with doing right? Are you practicing sin, it has to do with doing wrong? And John, in this passage, talks about, just make statements about sinning. Are you practicing sinning? If you are, then you fail the religious test. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And here you see the standard of righteous behavior. It's not what you think is right. It's what God says is right, which is in the law. He's given us a law. It's, it's in his word. In the Bible, he's instructed us in the way that we should go. There's no doubt what God wants us to do, how he wants us to behave. And any deviation from that is sin. Sin is lawlessness. In other words, sin is going contrary to what God has told us in his word. So I just want you to look at your life and think about your life. What's the pattern of your life? Are you practicing sin? Are you submitting your life to God's ways? Are you living your ways? Because the pattern of your life will 
will mirror your relationship with Jesus or will show that there is no relationship there. Look look down at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Practicing righteousness, keep on sinning. Listen to the New American Standard. It says, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. And that's the best literal translation that there is. Hamarte. He sins. Just present tense. No one who abides in him sins. Now, the reason why the, the ESV and the NIV both add this, this phrase, keeps on sinning, right? No one who abides in him keeps on sinning is because this phrase, no one who abides in him sins can be ambiguous. You might think that it means that no one who abides in Jesus will ever sin. In other words, we will be perfect. But, of course, that would contradict the Bible. James 1 says, if anyone does not sin in what he says, does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. And there's only one perfect man, that's Jesus. We've all sinned, and we all continue to sin. So this verse contradicts the Bible. But more importantly, this verse, if it means that we don't ever sin, it would contradict John, and that's much stronger. Because if, if indeed it contradicted another writer or thought it did, you need to look, think long and hard about, okay, how do those things, how do those things work together? And Paul says some things that James right, clashes with a little bit. You need, to, you need to look at those to try to understand how they are. But when John himself writes something that is contrary to what you might think verse 6 says, then you have to take heed. Remember back in chapter 1, it says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right? In other words, if we say we're not sinning, then the truth is not in you. If we contend a Christian doesn't sin, then we've just denied chapter 1, verse 8. And, and chapter 1, verse 9 speaks about our process. We need to be confessing our sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So chapter 3, verse 6 isn't saying that a, a Christian would be perfect. But I do believe that it just speaks about the pattern one's life. You, you won't keep on sinning. In fact, you could even take verse 6 as be this. When you are abiding in Jesus, though, you won't ever be sinning. if You're truly abiding in Him. Now, when you sin, you get out of that abiding relationship. But, you know, the whole process is to abide in Christ and so as to see Him working through you as the vine, the branches, works through you, and then you won't keep on sinning. And I do think that the ESV and the NIV is totally legitimate. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. Because in the Greek language, the, the, the present tense has more of an emphasis upon just the action than the time of the action. Our present tense, it's like you're doing it now. Whereas the, the Greek present tense just means doing it is happening or keep on sinning no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him are you practicing sin in other words right are the the sins are there sins in your life that you're holding dear that you just you kind of got them as i read last a couple of weeks ago right you kind of got them in your closet and you say, these are, these are my things. And I don't want anyone to touch my things. Well, there's, there's continual sin right there. And no one who abides in Him will have that continual sin. 
It's your practice. See, it's one thing to, to hate your sin and to strive against it and to seek righteousness. And when you sin, you confess it, you hate it towards God, you say, God, please give me the strength to overcome this. That's, that's one attitude. That's not practicing sin. That's, that's, that's struggling with sin. That's trying to get rid of it. But practicing sin says, so oh, I, I like this. I think it's okay. And that's one of the dreadful things wrong with the homosexual movement today. Homosexual Christians, so-called Christians, is that they have their sin, homosexuality, and they are abiding in it and staying in it, and it's unrepentant. That's wrong. That's every bit as wrong as if I have my adulterous thoughts and I act on them and I say, well, that's where I am. They have homosexual thoughts and they act on them. They're content. I certainly wouldn't be content with that. So there's a difference. One is practicing sin. One is cultivating sin. And the other life is one that's hating sin and, and avoiding sin. So I just, just ask you, are you practicing sin? Because it has to do with your relationship with the Lord. If you're unrepentant with your sin, you're not abiding in Him. If unrepentant sin is your habit, you haven't seen Him, you haven't known Him. That's what verse 6 says there at the end. You've never seen Him or known Him. And, and I think that's talking to the first generation about those who maybe have seen Him or, or maybe you know, those who claim to know Jesus. He says, I don't care what you say. If you're abiding in sin, you don't know Him. We, we saw that back in chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know Him but does not keep His commandments is a liar. If you're practicing sinning, you don't know Him. I don't care what you say. You don't know Him. A parallel statement is spoken a little bit different is in chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in Him, and He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. Listen again, right? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Because God's seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. There's this talking about being born of God. When, when God's seed comes in you and you are regenerate, you're born again, it has an implication then upon the way you live. You will be changed. I've heard people say, no change, no Jesus, no Jesus, no change. That's exactly what John is talking about here. Because if you've been changed, because God has has regenerated, changed you, called a child of God, chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father's given to us that we should be called children of God. If indeed you are born of God, then this change will make an impact on your life. Where your life was once filled with self and selfishness and you being king, now your new desire is to submit to Christ being king and to submit to His ways and to seek His words. And on top of that, there's this new power and ability Because if you've been born of God, you cannot keep on sinning. So anyone who's keeping on sinning cannot have been born of God because the one who's been born of God has this power to overcome and will overcome. You say, where's that power come from? It comes from God. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. If you've been born of God, you won't keep on sinning. And so the question is, are you practicing sin? Because if you're practicing sin, it it reveals what kind of jelly bean you are. Now, 
The good news of the gospel is this, is that the Christ has come and he does things in our life to help us get rid of that sin. See, not only does our, our faith forgive us our sins in Christ, our faith also empowers us over our sins. Because Jesus enters our life and he keeps us, and as verse 18 says, he protects us. That is, he, he guards us. And the evil one cannot touch him. The one who's been born of God has the sovereign hands of Christ all around him and he cannot be touched by the devil because he's a child of God. He's not a child of the devil. And he will protect him and he will keep him and he will guard him. That's what our faith does. Look at chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. That law that used to be burdensome no longer is burdensome because God has changed us and given us desire for that law. But look at verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You say, what does it mean to overcome the world? Basically, it means to live above the world. is to, to not succumb to the temptations and the desires of the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And there it is. Faith in Jesus Christ is a sign of of being born again is a righteous life. It's right there. And what's the victory that overcomes the world? Is our faith. Our faith and trust in Christ is what empowers us to live beyond Him. So I just say this, are, are you born again? Do you have faith in Him? Do you know victory over sin? Or are you practicing sin? Because the reality is this, when Christ came to earth, He abolished sin, or more precisely, He took away sin now here's where the gospel comes and here's where it becomes really sweet. I've talked about righteousness, talked about sin and maybe the Holy Spirit is working in your life of, of areas where maybe you need to see God this week. Can, are, are you real or am I going to overcome that sin this week? But verse 5 says this, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins and in Him there is no sin. See, Jesus Christ, when He came to... When he came, he came to remove sin. And that's good news because he came to remove sin and he came to remove sin's power and sin's dominion in our life. You remember John the Baptist, what he said? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who, what did he say? Takes away the sin of the world. There's a sin of the world and Jesus Christ comes and he takes it away. That is, he removes it. He doesn't just clean it up. Rather, he actually takes it away as we sang today. My sin, and I love how it is well did that, Horatio Spafford, my sin, and he says, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, right? I just hope that verse 5, when you look about it, he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. You ought to just say, oh, what a glorious thought verse 5 is. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And, and, and there it is. He says, my sin, not just part of my sin, but all of my sin, nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more because it's gone. It's rid. That's right. When Christ came, He came to take away sins. And nailed to the cross is the illusion. Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14. When you're dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt 
consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The idea here is that we have sin and Jesus has gathered it up into his arms and he has taken it and he has taken it away and he's thrown it in the garbage. He has has destroyed it. He has burned it up. And it's there. It's gone. And, And that's precisely the difference between God and us. Because as we deal with one another, we sin against each other, and we need to forgive each other. Spouses need to exercise this a lot. Brothers and sisters need to exercise this a lot. And you sin against someone, you need to forgive them. Right? But what does it mean when you forgive someone their sin? Doesn't it mean that you just will overlook it? You will look past it? You will forget about it? You will not bring it up again. You won't hold it against them. In some regards, when we forgive other people our sin, we, we pick up the rug and we sweep it under the rug and then we put the rug back over and we say, oh, they're okay, I've dealt with your sin. Your sin is, is there and it's hidden. It's gone. But when God deals with our sin, it's much different because He actually removes our sin from us. He takes it away He no longer brings a charge against us because the evidence has been destroyed. There's no more DNA on our sin. That file that the sheriff used to have on us, he can't find it anymore because God takes away our sin. And the only way this can be done is through a sinless Savior. In Him, verse 5 says, there is no sin See, it could never take place through Old Testament sacrifices because Hebrews 10, for the law, since there's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But it's possible for Jesus to come, the perfect Son of God, the God-man, to take away sins by taking our punishment that we deserved in the cross. And that is the good news, that Christ, He took away our sins. Now, But it gets better than that. Not only are our sins gone, but also its power and dominion over us is gone as well. When it says in Hebrews chapter 4 that we have a high priest, a sympathetic high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's one who's every respect to where we are, tempted in everything and without sin. See, Jesus Christ was without sin and his sin didn't tempt him anymore. Sin wasn't present in him. And that was gone. And Jesus Christ could be the perfect one who came and take that power away. And the evil one will not touch a genuine believer like I talked about before because it's said here in verse 8. Look at this. The second half, right? Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The second half. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil's work. What's the devil's work? Well, he prowls around like a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, 8, seeking someone to devour. Um, he tempts. Matthew chapter 4, he tempted Jesus. right? He, he accuses the brethren. Right? He, he, he seeks to seduce them into sin. And if Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, he destroyed the outcome of that, and he destroyed even the ability of that in the believer's life. Sin and temptation, the devil no longer have mastery over the believer in Christ because Jesus has stripped the believer of his power. 
destroyed his works. That's why a believer practices righteousness. Why a believer doesn't practice sin is because the devil's work has been abolished. So I ask, what about you? Do you practice righteousness? Do you practice sin? Are you a child of God? Are you a child of the devil? Are you following the Lord? Are you following your own ways? You know, I trust as we've gone through that exercise for most of you. You're going to find it resonate in your heart and say, you know what? I, I do see a righteousness in my life. I do see a Godward focus and direction. This is my practice of my life. I mean, you're here in church. Hopefully the Bible's reality far beyond just church, but his home as well. And in fact, even you think about chapter 5, verse 13, when John wrote this, he assumed that everyone passed this test. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's, he's writing this to the believers. So I'm preaching this to the church. He says then about those who left, chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So they, they went out. So those who were false were were pilfering off. But John knew full well that there was perhaps some people he wrote to who weren't practicing righteousness, who were, were practicing sin. But for the most part, he was giving them assurance. And I just say, church family, I give this assurance to you as well. So I look upon you today. It's not someone I'm thinking, oh, they need to hear this message. Yeah, that, yeah the, those people I'm talking about, yeah, they're not here today. Who would really need to hear that message. I can say with John, chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. Because I see the way that you interact with people. I see your heart and passion for the lost. I see how you love God's word. I see how you're pursuing righteousness. I see how you're making godly choices in your home. Maybe there's some things you've hidden from me that I don't know. And maybe it's convincing. But I, but I can say this, Beloved, we are God's children now. Or chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You've overcome the world. You've overcome those false teachers. You're from God. Rock Valley Bible Church. Chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God. That's you all and we all know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but we're from God. Now, that doesn't mean automatically that that's every single one of us. Maybe God's touching your heart in some way of some sin or righteousness that you need to get, get right with the Lord. Because you may fail in these tests. And, and if you do, that's good news. If God is working on your heart, now that's like the best news is to say that, that you're realizing that because there are many people who don't realize that. And I'm going to get to that before my, my message concludes. But for you, if you realize that, what a gift it is. To say, oh, I need to make things right. God, I need to abide in you so that you work through me. Maybe you've never believed. I, I can't, I've heard many, many testimonies of people who've been in church for years and then they come to faith in Christ, playing the game, and finally they come. If you fail the righteousness test, you're in a good place because you're not deluded. I used to tell you, repent of your sin, pursue righteousness, and turn from your sin. Now, before I close my message, I, I, I do want to give a second point of application. Up until this point, for 45 minutes, I focused on you 
you, you. But there's a reason for that. Okay, the reason for that is um, because we need to focus on ourselves first. My second point of application is though for others, because this will help you in your Christian life a lot. This truth helped me immensely. I want you to think about others. Right? I want for you to use this test on other people who profess to be Christians, but their life is not, is not quite following up. In other words, they're professing to be Christians, but they're not just even the sniff test. They're, not, they're just not passing the righteousness test. They're not passing the sin test. Are they, are they sinning? Because, I say this, you need to do that because you need to know whether you're dealing with believers or non-believers in your counsel, in your thought, in your fellowship, in what you do with people like that. But in doing this, we need to be careful. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't judge lest you be judged. And how many non-Christians know that in their Bible? Don't judge lest you be judged. But if you, if you read it, it says basically judge yourself first deeply and then judge others. And know that how deep you've judged yourself, how deeply you judge others, you will be judged with that same judgment. So you, you judge yourself deeply and you judge them less because God's going to hold you to the standard you place on others, right? Do not judge so you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of measure, will be measured to you. So as you look at other people... The judgment that you put on them, know that God is going to take that right back on you. So you be careful. But he says this, Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye? You do not notice the log that's in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck that is out of your eye when there's a big log in your eye. And you know that illustration that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. It's hilarious. But Jesus says, You hypocrite. First take, first take the log out of your eye. In other words, examine yourself first. Examine your big sins first. And then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And there's some that take these verses and said, no, 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 you shouldn't judge. But they miss the next verse that says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. You need to discern who are swine and who are dogs. And if they're dogs, you don't give them what's holy. If they're swine, you don't give them the pearls. You are making a judgment and you will always make a judgment. It needs to be held in the right perspective, the right discernment. Jesus warns against judging others because they're going to come back to us. But I believe that if you've applied it to yourself, you really understand, am I practicing righteousness, am I practicing sin, then you ought to reflect and turn that on others because there are many in the world who are deceived. There are many in the world who are deceived about these things. And you need to tell them. For instance, Krista came home from college. I was talking to her. Um, we've been talking, I don't know, often, a long time. There's a, a friend of hers who's involved in the same campus group, same church, who got engaged a couple months ago. And um, you, you told us about it because it's like, it's not a good engagement. Okay? There's something, the guy is pretty iffy. In fact, it's not just Carissa. It's got some personality conflict with this guy. It's, it's like the, um, the consensus of the girls. Like, this guy's really kind of bad news. If, you know what I mean. Women, you probably know what I mean about just the consensus of where that is. So they're judging this guy. And uh, so this 
friend of Chris's has been approached by some people and some concerns have been expressed. You've had some direct, very direct conversations with her about some concerns about this guy, right? You shouldn't be equally yoked. You shouldn't be unequally yoked, right? You, you shouldn't, as a professing believer in Jesus, you should only marry believers. And this guy, I'm not sure if he's a believer because of da 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 and I don't know your conversations, but something, something along those lines. And Chris's testimony is that she has patiently listened, but she's rejected the counsel of the women in the college group, the young ladies in her college group, her friends, her peers. And uh, she's pretty much gone ahead, done her own thing, ignored counsel of others. Well, they were planning to get married in the summer, but she's pregnant. So get married in December. So Chris goes back to speak with her. She hasn't spoken with her. She said her roommate did speak with her, and tears were shed on both sides um, about how difficult life is. She was talking about how life was difficult before. And by the way, just, it's interesting. Chris said that before it came out, she was pregnant. She's talking about how hard life is. You start putting two and two together, and you start realizing how much people can hide of their sin. And, and here it comes. Now it's coming full-fledged broad. And what sort of angle should Chris take? Okay, you guys are are advising the... What sort of angle should you take? Shut it. Are you practicing sin? Or are you practicing righteousness? You know, there are only two kinds of people. What, what side are you on? And gently and, and carefully, she needs to, to communicate this in some regards to her. It's not easy to tell people that you don't think they're a Christian. In fact, I remember confronting a man, a rift between us for over a decade. And basically it was this whole thing, is that I, I don't see fruit in your life. I don't see righteousness. I, I see sin instead. And, uh, and that's, that's how it is. But see, when, when you just take these tests, and I'm not talking about deep, I'm just talking on the surface level. Someone says, yes, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And then you say, I mean, kids, even you guys especially, you know what's going on in the home. You know what mom and dad are like. And, and mom and dad, you might think you might hide hypocrisy, but when you act holy in church... And then fail to, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And fail to love her as your own body. And women, as you fail to submit to your husband and seek his leadership and seek his guidance. And they're like, well, isn't that what the gospel teaches us? Right? But you fight and argue and bitter complain. But you come to church and you smiles. Your children see right through that. And your children are in the place where they can see where you are. God was even better. But if you just deal socially with people. You, I just know plenty of people who, who go to church. They live in other places, on their hearts and their minds. It's not, it's not there. And it's so interesting about this passage. Look, look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. <laughs> Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning of the beginning. I would say the church in America have a huge discernment problem. We've been deceived because how many people are there? who will just look on that and will call people Christians when they're living in sin. I know of some people, I'm sure there are many like this, who are living in sin, attending a church, the church is happy to have them because they're filling a pew. And they're being deceived on the way to hell. They're not, they're not being confronted by their sin, they're not being talked about their sin, they're just kind of going that way and they think that everything is okay. How many times have I heard 
People talk about how many people came to the Lord, right? We had this great meeting, and right, 15 people came to the Lord because they all prayed. If anything this passage teaches us, it teaches us that a prayer is wonderful. But to know whether they really came to the Lord or not, let's, let's wait a little bit. When, whenever do you get a newsletter from missionaries that says this, oh, we had a great meeting. A year ago, we had a great meeting. Had 15 people come and pray, and three of them, Continue the Lord. Let's praise the Lord for the three. They always announce the 15. They don't announce the three because they want their numbers, right? But if anything that First John is talking about, it's talking about the three. Just because someone prays a prayer, that's wonderful. Let's not give undue assurance. Or children's ministries. Oh, we just pray this prayer. You know, the children, well, whatever, they, they don't even know what they're saying. And you pray this prayer, Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner, asking me into my heart. They say, oh, good, now you're a Christian, now you're a believer, now you're on your way to heaven, and wonderful. Like, let's wait a little bit to discern a little bit to see if God really is working there, or whether it's just an outward talk. And, and the whole church abroad, I'm telling you, just has zero discernment and are being deceived in this area. I know I was deceived for many, many years because I was in the, the broad church that never confronted this issue, that just said, oh, if you believe in Jesus, yes, you're okay, wonderful. You're in, welcome to the kingdom. And, and I want to be, I'm saying, let's be open, let's be welcoming, but let's, let's say, you know what, let's look at their heart, look at their desires. See, are, are they having Godward desires and Godward focus? Is it there or not? And when it's there, boy, rejoice in that and pray with that. When it's not there, realize that they're just unregenerate professing Christians. And the church abroad is filled with them. In fact, the bigger the church, the more there are. Okay? Because it's difficult to go to a smaller church where you'll be exposed. And people want big churches where they can kind of hide away. Where they don't know about their, their sin. Let's not be like formalists in hypocrisy who think we can get in our, our way. Who just think that a profession, just the out, outward Sunday morning thing is okay. But it's the... It's, it's the genuineness, whether we're practicing righteousness or staying away from sin. That's what gives us assurance. That's what ought to give you assurance. As you deal with people, look and see, and don't just trust what they say. Oh, where do you go to church? Oh, good. Find out more about them. Find out their habits. Find out their life. Find out what they're pursuing about. And as you find out those things, genuinely rejoice or discern that, you know what, maybe these people are lost and you need to tell them the gospel. Persuade them in to hope in Christ with all their hearts for all their lives. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray in your grace that you would take this message, apply it deep to our hearts. I pray that we would follow Christ's model is to take the logs out of our own eyes. God, how easy is it to miss the log in our eyes? God, how we must, though, See if people, what they're saying doesn't match with what they're, they're living. And let us believe their life, God, not their tongue. And I pray especially even for Chris's friend who is, who is in a trap. God, who life just got much, much, much more difficult. God, I pray you give compassion to Krissa. She talks with this individual, cries with her. Calls her to come to faith in Christ. Calls her to see that her decision to marry this guy is of the flesh. It's not of, not of you. Decision to, 
engage in sinful activity is certainly not from you. She's not been walking with you. I, I pray, Lord, that you would grant repentance there. And, and for those in the church and situation, God, there's hope. There's brokenness oftentimes. I pray that you'd break this gal. She'd come to Christ and do what's right. I pray for this gentleman. I don't even know their names, oh God, but I, I pray you would, would help them. Help them to turn from their sin and to walk rightly because they can be restored. We know people in our church body who've lived just like that and are restored and walking rightly before you. would pray you'd do that in Bloomington Normal. would pray you'd do that here at our, our church. Help us, oh God, to pass the test of righteousness ourselves and to use this for others so that we might be more vigilant to share the gospel with people, to call them to repent and turn and trust Jesus. Do your work, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.